It is the Holding Serve podcast for the week ending October 15th, 2021. I'm your host, Agazi Georges. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Radio Agaz, Radio A-G-A-Z. Follow this podcast on Instagram at Holding Serve Podcast and on Twitter at Holding Serve Pod. So we are back after a short hiatus. Uh, my apologies for that. A lot going on. Not just in the podcasting realm, but in other areas, so I've been been away for a little bit. But I come back bearing gifts. Uh, I talked about, uh, on, a, on a few podcasts ago, I talked about uh, uh, having guests on this show for you. And recently I had a chance to talk to Luke Jensen, uh, currently of ESPN. Uh, as you know, Luke Jensen, the... 1993 French Open doubles champion along with his brother Murphy. We had a chance to sit down and discuss this not only the state of American tennis, but we did a, a recap of what was a very, very exciting U.S. Open where things turned out just as we planned, right? Uh, Emma Raducanu beating Layla Fernandez in the final. Just how we all had it filled out on our U.S. Open brackets. Um... I'll say this quickly. This was uh, the tournament that professional tennis, I don't want to say needed, but it was such a welcome sight for sore eyes and a welcome sound for sore ears. Is that a thing? I don't know. Um, But even though tennis has been back pretty much um, the full year already, or at least starting with the Australian Open when we had partial crowds and then we moved on to uh, Roland Garros and you know Wimbledon with the full crowd everything like that but this was the one that really felt like it was a celebration and a return to somewhat normalcy um, you know one of the days I was watching the open and I'm not sure it was on on ESPN and I'm not sure if it was Pam Shriver or um, it might have been Renee Stubbs but she remarked how the crowd response was almost as if people had been saving this energy and had it pent up from not being able to attend the U.S. Open last year. And they, they brought it with them, and they were loud, and they were boisterous. And you could almost feel the energy just coming through the screen. It was an absolute wonderful thing to experience from a fan perspective. Um, I've been to several U.S. Opens throughout the years, and I can tell you that, man, this was about as good as it gets from from the fan experience. Um, not only did we have many, many, many exciting matches, many exciting storylines, you know, you had the emergence of Layla Fernandez and Emma Raducanu, who we saw have a bit of a breakthrough at Wimbledon, but... You know, th- there she was playing in her home country. Things got a little heavy for her, and uh, she wasn't able to uh, continue that match, that fourth-round match with Tomjanovic. But here, I think, having that experience, both good and the experience of, of you know, having that deep anxiety at Wimbledon uh, helped her in her run to the U.S. Open title. So... You had an 18-year-old and, and a 19-year-old who turned 19 during the tournament 
in your final. And they really disrupted and shook up the women's game in a way that we haven't we haven't seen for a while. You know, you see some young stars come along, but it's rare that you see two young stars break through at the same time. And boy, was it interesting and fun to watch. So, in that regard, in that regard, this to me was one of the best Grand Slam tournaments that we've seen in a while. Um, sad to see Naomi Osaka go through what she was going through in that match with Layla Fernandez, but uh, as you'll hear later, I discussed that with Luke Jensen, uh, and he had a, a really, really good take on it. Um, and you know, on the on the men's side. You had a first-time winner. Medvedev finally broke through, stopping Novak Djokovic from from making some history. Um, hell of a run for Djokovic. I mean, what can you say about a guy that wins, you know, the Australian, the French, Wimbledon? And he comes into the U.S. Open having not succeeded at the Olympics, but still comes in with a chance to complete the calendar year Grand Slam. And, you know, he just ran out of gas, both physically and emotionally. And he also ran into a player that was ready. A player that was ready for his breakthrough and a player that was ready to face the challenge of beating the world, the dominant world number one. And I think Medvedev really learned a lot, not just from losing the 2019 U.S. Open final, but also from earlier this year when he lost that Australian Open final to Djokovic. This was a completely different match, and I thought he played with a lot more confidence, a lot more uh, assertiveness, and he was definitely up for the challenge. Uh, Djokovic, you know, he had some struggles throughout the first six matches, none bigger than the match against Verev, which ended up being a huge, huge body blow and uh, something that left him ripe for the picking by the time he got to Medvedev. But hats off to Medvedev because he played just outstanding tennis and you know he won the tournament in Toronto. Was it Toronto or Montreal this year? Oh, Montreal. Um, and then had that weird... Uh, that weird match in, in Cincinnati where he ran into the camera person that was stationed on the court and he got all upset and then, you know, that cost him his match against Rublev. But he was still, both him and Zverev came in there playing super, super high-level tennis and it was going to be up to one of them to beat Djokovic. And Zverev got a lot of shots in there and almost almost got the job done, but... Medvedev did, and he's the man that ended up holding up the U.S. Open trophy. Um, so many different storylines, you know, that went throughout those two weeks in Queens. And we got into it, myself and Luke Jensen. Um, and so I will go ahead and give that to you right now. This is an interview that was taped about two weeks ago. It's myself and Luke Jensen. We talked the U.S. Open we talked a little bit about uh, Luke and when he uh, played doubles, when he won the French Open in 93 with his brother Murphy, uh, and some good insight on what it's like playing on the tour and what it's like 
playing in grand slams. A lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily think about, you know, both on the court and off the court. So a really, really good interview. Um, very glad I had a chance to talk to him. And uh, here it is from you. And on the other side of the interview, we will talk a little bit about Indian Wells. Luke, how you doing, buddy? How are you? It's Agassi Georges. What's going on? Yeah, man, doing great. I'm excited. Thanks for thinking about me. Always, always. Are you always this happy? I don't think I've ever seen you, whether it was on TV or around the grounds of the <laughs> National Tennis Center, not in a good mood. Dude, I've been living on scholarship for so long, it's just stealing. I really need to be put away because uh, I was a nothing from nowhere, grew up on a Christmas tree farm, and should not be living this life of professional tennis for this long. So the uh, I am I'm scamming the system. I don't know how I'm able to do it, but every day I I am just completely so grateful and honored to be part of the uh, global game. I, I I totally get it. I don't know about scamming though. People don't scam their way to a a French Open doubles title with their brother, no less. That that takes well, a lot of hard work. It was on red clay, so you got to eliminate most of the Americans, right? Except for Chang and Courier. Sampras is not winning on that red stuff. Agassi, obviously, but you know, so those guys they're not playing doubles. And then you've just got to navigate your way quietly through the first week and just somehow get through there. And then, of course, the Soviets. They were boycotting that year, and it was before the war, so it was with wood rackets and cat gut. So, you know, you just kind of just figure it out a little serve and volley, trying to tell the kids there used to be a tactic called serve, and then you would volley it before the ball bounced. And it's just, you know, to the kids today, it's just like, oh, man, you are too OLD. You don't know how to play. you got to play plus one. you got to do the four ball or whatever that's like. I don't know, man. I I serve here and I volley there, and that's how I win my points. And good things happen. Let me speak, stay, stay on the French. Um, when you look back, 28 years now, what? when you look back, what do you remember, obviously, winning it, but what were those two weeks like for you and Murph? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's it's blessed us every single day because you walk into a room and you're a Grand Slam champion. You're a major champion. Um, rarely did they announce that you're a finalist, you know, that, right. you know, you were. And so I just remember specifically the first thing that jumps out is, you know, understanding my whole life was based on trying it as hard as you can. And no matter what, that was going to be okay. Whether you won or lost, the, the effort was more important than the outcome. And you won more than you lost and you kept getting better that way. You didn't get yourself into traps that you see with, players today where winning is everything. The result means everything. And if you don't win, your self-identity gets damaged and you start to get in these head games that you can't get out of, whereas I felt our parents and all, all four of us played Grand Slams, all four siblings, all three siblings and myself, and I think my parents just focused on the value of effort in practice, value of effort in under pressure, especially when you're down or your game doesn't leave the locker room and, and you're playing like garbage and the other side's playing great. Just effort, effort, effort and a great attitude. The value of having fun is extraordinary. And I, I just remember that morning getting up and going, you know, of all the matches that I've ever played, all the experiences, if I don't win this one, if we finish second best, 
we may never get here again. And it was the only time in my life where I said, you know what, we have got to win. Like losing's not an option. Failure's not an option. So I remember that specifically within myself. There are lots of stories within that tournament. We came in uh, that spring. We had an eight-match losing streak. And you have to remember, when you lose eight matches in a row on the Pro Tour, that's eight weeks in a row. So you're closing in on three months of not even coming. Sometimes you lose in three sets. Sometimes you're, you don't even play well. Some days you're up match points, and you find a way to lose it. And going into the uh, Italian Open, there were a lot of, lot of doubts, like what Murphy and I were going to do, because we had, I'm two and a half years older. I'd already been on the tour for a while and doing well with other players. And this was Murphy's first year in the show, and he didn't, didn't want to blow it, didn't want to mess it up and mess up my ranking and his ranking and our dream to play and, and win together. And so we, we got on a run in Rome. We fought our way through a couple of three-setters, got to the semis that week, got to the finals in a tournament in Bologna. And those mm. prep weeks, those weeks before majors are key. If you see like uh, Radakanu, who won the Women's U.S. Open, she got to the finals of a Chicago 125 WTA event that so gave her a little bit of runway and momentum, not confidence. I don't like players saying I'm looking for confidence because that's a, that's a player searching for this mystical unicorn thing called confidence. You have to have it to win. You have to walk into the arena with ultra confidence. But what you do get is momentum. And Rome and Bologna gave us momentum where – I sat down in the morning warm-up with Murphy, and I said, you know, we can win this. And I, I, I played a number of Grand Slams before and had some looks in the second weeks. I think a couple of quarters, once at, once at the U.S. Open, another at the French. Um, did okay at Wimbledon and the Australian. 80, I think it was 88, 89, I played with David Wheaton. Ah, so, right. Yeah, so I said, you know, we can win this. You know, we, we serve big, both over 130. We're, you know, he's 6'4", I'm 6'2". You know, we serve, play big enough. We, we're just tough enough that it didn't matter what surface. And just, you just put your head down, put the blinders on. And I remember having that conversation with him. And he was just happy to have good croissants and never been in Paris before. And he was just riding this way, being a pro athlete. And I wanted to win tournaments. And two weeks later, we we come home with the uh, with the hardware. Amazing. Now, I always forget, and I have to go back and 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 find the video. Who who messed up the celebration on match point? Didn't did somebody not find <laughs> the chest bump? Because well, let's, let's talk yeah. about the important thing about that match. Yeah. Well, that's that's the one thing that I we have the most infamous. I don't know if it's famous. You know, Borg used to go to his knees. Pat Cash went up into his player box for the first time at Wimbledon, which was a huge no-no to celebrate with his family. Um, and so the second week, I'm sorry, the first weekend, you know, we had won a few matches, but, I mean, that's nothing. I mean, you're so far away. I mean, you got through the, the real dodgy part of just getting your game together and beating a few teams. But uh, someone in the locker room said, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to celebrate if you win? And we're really big in the big-time wrestling, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. And so wow. from watching watching that, we're like, if, if we win, I'm going to body slam Murphy on the court if we win this thing. But we still had 
to get through even Ivanovich, Edberg, Korda, uh, Henri Leconte in the bull ring. And I mean, just all these players to just even have a chance at the title. And so we get the match point. Uh, I'm sorry, we're in that game. Murphy was serving for it. He was up 30 love. And normally in the huddle, the quarterback of the point is the server. And so Murphy's serving. He tells me where he's going to serve and what he wants me to do at the net, whether it's a little shake and bake, a cross, or a hybrid with formations. But and this is the only time he's ever done in our career. He said, whatever you do, don't hurt me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And John McEnroe's calling the match on NBC with Bud Collins, and it's, it was right after the women's final with Graf and Mary Jo Fernandez. So it was, it was just a great atmosphere. And the uh, – so I, what are you talking about? Like, we're not even close to winning. Like, let's focus. And so he double falls, misses a volley, and all of a sudden this game gets really dicey. Somehow we get match point. We win. And I go to embrace him. As I'm coming up, he's going down to hug me, and I clock him with a uh, forearm to the jaw. And I, I break his jaw. I mean, I, I was so excited. I didn't mean it. And he is cussing me out. He's using every bad you know, word of all time because he said, I told you not to hurt me. I knew you were going to He's like two brothers just scrapping. And I honestly, he walked right into my forearm and, uh, and our opponents couldn't believe like what's wrong with these knuckleheads. They just won a major and they're yelling at each other. And the tournament director is Murphy storming off the court. And he thought he was had blood all over his face, but he, he had some type of concussion because he's kind of loopy. And the tournament director said, Monsieur Murphy, Monsieur Murphy. And he's like, yes, what, what do you want? And he's like, you must pick up the trophy. And so he like slams his bag down, goes up. And back then it was up in the president's box. It's That's on the right. court now, but back then you would climb the stairs. And, and it was this really cool thing outside of in singles, you hold the whole trophy because you've earned it. And doubles, usually one player's on one side and the partner's on the other side holding one side. And it's a beautiful moment. Well, every trophy situation we have, Murphy's holding the trophy up above his head like he won it all by himself. And I'm reaching up, and I've got, like, a thumb, the index finger, and my middle finger, and I'm just barely hanging on to this. And it's the only time you get a chance to touch the big trophy. They give you a a smaller replica, but you only get a few moments to be with those trophies when you win. And and I got three fingers on mine. I'm looking at the picture right now. One, two, I'll be damned. It's three fingers. The pinky is hanging out. The pinky is not touching. And Murphy's no. got it. Like, Murphy's got two hands with the palms underneath, yeah. like when Agassi lifted it in 99. Yeah. That's hilarious. It's really oh, good. Man. It's really good. Yeah. That is good stuff. Um, to, to, to tie a little bow on the end of it, is it fair to say that the Jensen brothers – kind of paved the way like i know not stylistically but uh for the type of tennis that you see not just in doubles but in the singles game because you were talking about when pat cash climbed up and how how that was such a big no-no there were so many uh no-nos in tennis for so long and other than you know you had connors was a fiery guy McEnroe was the bad boy and then later on you know agassi drove everybody crazy with his outfits but Mm -hmm. I mean, for a large part of the game's uh, existence, it was a ladies and gentlemen and, 
You had to act a certain way. And now when you watch tennis, I mean, you know, every point is a come on and a let's go. And I really, uh, I, I really think you guys get a lot of that credit. Do you feel that way? Well, I, I would say today's uh, players that have come up, whether it's the Layla Fernandez and Ron Connors, you know, they weren't even born when we were playing. But I will say the, uh, you know, you talk to the Bryan brothers, and that's the greatest doubles team that's ever played. And right. they, we, we saw them when they were just munchkins. We would hit with them. And then when they graduated, when they finished at Stanford and got on the tour, we played with them. And they watched a lot of us. I wouldn't say X's and O's because they really, if you watch them, they adapt, they adapted through their career. I love watching them and studying the way they play because they played as intelligent as they were talented. And that won them a lot of majors being so smart as a doubles team. Um, but they used our, they, ins- we inspired the way the chest bump or the energy and the positivity and especially the fans, the way they went to the fans when yes. you get the fans going on their side. And that is universal. You don't have to speak their language, but when you're in Japan or you're in France or you're in Germany, if you go to the fans and you learn how to say, come on in their language or let's go, boy, they will jump on that bandwagon and they will get on and, and get you through some break points and some matches where you should lose. And so I'd say I'd take that. And then you had, you know, I, I really think, you know, especially on the women's side, Serena Williams is a lioness, the way she mm-hmm. competes. And and Venus, you know, even though she's a softer champion, a, a quiet champion, she still, you know, can bark and, and roar and, and I think Serena has really inspired this, the women's tour specifically. How and you watch enough of her matches, you're like, okay, this is this is how you mentally and emotionally commit to winning. And then of course, Roth on the men's side, Roger, you know, will bark from time to time. But I think when you get, especially in juniors, to the national level, when you're playing at the nationals, Kalamazoo, um, you know, the national clays and things. And then you play the Orange Bowl or the Eddie Herr. Uh, you play the, you know, the Junior Wimbledons and things. And then you step up either to the pros or to college tennis. You find your voice. And I think you're exactly right. It was a gentleman's game. It was very prim and proper. But I, I really think that the Nastasis, McEnroe's, the Connors uh, really showed how you could roar and show your uh, – the way you competed, the way you felt, and, and audiences dig it, really. And you can see it with Layla. Uh, you can see, it, you know, Djokovic, how he's done it through his his years. It's just how you compete now. And if you don't, it's like you're playing with one arm behind your back because, as you know, it's 90% mental, if not more. And you've got to commit every ounce of your being to the battle and get your nose in the fight. And you may lose, but you are completely committed. I I don't know if we, you know, transcended because we only won the one major, but definitely the Bryant brothers inspired a lot of people in the way they went about their business. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. That, that's everything you said. Couldn't have said it better myself. I, I often wondered as a kid why um, I felt like tennis was a little – uh, I don't mean for it to sound so negative, but behind on that aspect, because everything you said about engaging the crowd is a hundred percent 
spot on. We've seen so many matches where the crowd was that last bit of difference to push, you know, uh, uh, men or women uh, over or double team over that, that finish line. And this can uh, lead us right into looking back at this year's U.S. Open because I really thought, despite the fact that she ended up not winning the whole thing, I think that Layla Fernandez did the best job of getting the crowd involved. Well, she's 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 a smart tennis player. I mean, talking about the ability to go out there with a smile, and especially as we see the decline of, I don't want to say decline, maybe that's the wrong, but the situation with Naomi Osaka or, right. you know, other situations with players that, are really starting to feel growing pains as a superstar. And you win your major and you're like, there's more questions than answers. I thought once I win or become number one, this was going to be easy. No, it's actually 10 times as hard. The, the, the gravity of the moment and the gravity of every step and every swing is magnified. And you, it's no longer okay to just try your best. You are paid to win by your sponsors. TV expects you not only to win, but dominate. And Layla goes out there, and she's, remember, in the second round, she's down a set and a break against Naomi Osaka. So Osaka had lost her serve the entire match. And she's smiling, and you can see Osaka, even though Osaka is winning the match, the pressure on Osaka, and, and Layla just pulls that one out of the fire, pulled two other matches, where she had to play top five players and win those. When she's down, she has the uncanny ability to use scoreboard pressure, to not feel pressure when she's down, but to apply pressure through her smile and her positivity. It's like, until you kill me, I'm going to keep attacking you. And I think the crowd really watched. I think she had four three-setters, B. Kerber in three, who's a future Hall of Famer. Yeah, yep. and I think the crowd, yep. yeah, and and so I, I think when you look at her, you're like, holy cow, this is this girl's a warrior, and she does have that kind of Jimmy Connors kind of Serena Williams warrior aspect, and she's just a little package, a little lefty that takes the ball early. Uh, but Radicano, I mean, the thing is, you never knew what you're going to get because she kept killing everybody. The closest set, she won every set except in the, I think the closest one was second round of qualies was 7-5 against someone like 380 or something. But every other score was, she blew everybody out. Yeah, I, it was uh, just a, a really interesting um, to look at the, the different, I was looking at the tournament bracket just now, really interesting to look at the two different paths that they took. But it was either... Uh, maybe in somewhere the Osaka match and then the Kerber match after where I really felt like Fernandez was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm I'm the darling of this tournament right now and I'm yeah. going to get these people on my side. And you're right. And they, they even talked about it on the broadcast about how she plays such smart tennis. But I thought the the uh, almost as smart as the, the you know, the shot selection and uh, situational awareness was the way she used the crowd um, – to her advantage, and oh, you know, agreed. She just ran, agreed. She just ran into Emma, who just—I mean, like you said—once she got through qualies, was just smacking people off the court. Um, yeah, you, I got to be sidelined for that. And the thing with Emma, her returns 
And John Michael Gamble said, because he was at the match where Shelby Rogers, who had just beaten Vardy in three sets, and and Emma beat the garbage off a big hitter, Shelby Rogers, the American. And and John Michael Gamble was in the player box for that one, for the Vardy, because he's good friends with Shelby. And he said, you know, I understand, like, this girl's a qualifier, and she's only won, like, seven matches going into the U.S. Open in two events. She barely got a wild card at Wimbledon and got to the round of 16. And then she got nervous of talking to Ranakanu. But John Michael Gamble said this is the best returner, most aggressive, fearless returner in the game, in the women's game since Monica Sellis. And that was, wow. that was, I mean, to me, head turning to me. It was like a guy who knows who play, I played him. That dude had a big return, beat everybody. And, uh, for him to say that, I was like, like, Boy, when you have an offensive weapon like that, you put fear into the server. And um, you could see, you know, in that final, Layla Fernandez was trying to use every leftiness she had, every slice and can opener and slippery repeat to try to go, you know, bender, breaker, body, wide, you know, a few T. But holy cow, when Ronacano got a hold of it, it was game over. Look, how at age eight, uh, 18, um, wait, who just turned? No, uh, Fernandez turned 19 during the tournament. Just um, turned, yeah. Right, but Emma, 18 years old. How at age 18 are you in July in Wimbledon? And like you said, she got nervous in that match against Tomjanovic. Is it as simple as she's playing well and then all of a sudden you look around and go, oh, my God, I'm playing at Wimbledon and everybody's rooting for me. And then – Two months later, no one can touch her. Yeah. You know, that's a really good, I think, a deep dive into what happened. Her dad didn't want her to leave during COVID, if you remember. She played the Battle of the Brits. She wasn't even, you know, she wasn't at that time even the best Brit at the time. And so she's ranked, what, under 300. Uh, to me, it's what she's done. If you look at her game, you really break down her volleys, her serve, first, second, movement. There really isn't anything that is glaringly bad. You know, sometimes you see players like, oh, I can attack that, or maybe they're not as good around the net or going up to the short ball. Second serve maybe gets a little dicey. There isn't really one area of the game where you go, boy, you know, it's bad. No, it's every part of her game has been built systematically where you, this is exactly what you want to do as young players, skill build, skill build work on the weaknesses, run it out to a tournament, bring it back into the garage and, like, tinker with the volley or tinker with the the mindset or the tactics. And you just keep building. And I think because she she wasn't chasing points because she was she was going to real school, she just finished her SATs, basically. They call it A-levels in England. Right. So she just finishes that, like, a week before Wimbledon. So she's 300 in the world and just – just starts finding her game and, of course, playing Wimbledon for a Brit. It's it's heaven. And I think that experience also shows me, even though Tomjanovic, that match, she got overwhelmed, she learned from it. And she said, okay, yeah. you know, this is how I handle pressure and this is how I handle, you know, the crowd or the, the media and all these things. And I think she goes into the U.S. Open playing qualities is great. There's no – there were no fans because of COVID at the U.S. Open Quali, so she didn't have to worry about the attention. She's not in Great Britain. She's in the United States, and 
you know, it's a nice little story, but ESPN really isn't covering her outside of a result or maybe a highlight. And then all right. of a sudden she gets through three matches and like, hey man, this is this is great. And then she, you know, yeah. starts peeling things. And again, this isn't like down a set and a break. This isn't down a break in the third. This is these are clean kills. Straight sets, straight sets, straight sets. And the the court being a little bit quicker helps a big, aggressive, clean ball striker like Radakanu. And to me, an 18-year-old that becomes fearless, you know, that walks into the arena with confidence. And and we interviewed her. Uh, I work with ESPN and their direct TV connection. So we interview players and we watch all the courts, um, not just the main courts. And we saw her just love New York and love the opportunity to be here. And I will say, when she walked into the finals, she had already played Fernandez in juniors in 2018 at Wimbledon and beat her. And I think if if Raducanu would have played, let's say, another veteran like Halep or a uh-huh. Serena, or I think it would have been interesting, you know, another amazing hurdle to climb. But when you look across the net and you're like, oh, there's another teenager. Oh, I played you. Remember when we played and I beat you? That to the competitor is gold. Not not to mention the two matches before that quarterfinals: Benchich three and four, Sakari in the semis one and four. So, yeah. I mean, and, and, and they weren't even close. Yeah, no, remember, those two players were playing great. They were playing. Benchich had just won the Olympics, and you know, right. I mean, it's just like. Man, to just just and again, I say clean kills because boy, when you can go out there and just take care of your serve and take care of you know opportunities where you don't. I mean, look what she did the final game of the final. Blood's going down her leg. She's down a break point. Come out, win that point. Come out, win the next point. Just bang hits. I think she hit an ace on match point. That is a mental mountain right there. It, it certainly is. And to uh, to your point about uh, what it, what it's like for a Brit to play at Wimbledon, man, it kind of makes you appreciate everything that Andy Murray's done. You know? Yeah, yeah. With all, winning with there twice that. and then winning the winning the Olympics, the London Games, and winning the gold medal. That's what I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. That's what you're right. Because you're he, absolutely won the, right. he won the Open right after that, right? Yep, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, he got over the hump right there. Um. A little bit about um, Osaka. We know she's been very open about her men- mental health challenges. Were, were you? Did it still surprise you um, the way it went down in the first match? Because she seemed to be not playing her best, but like you said, up a set and serving for it, and then things just kind of just kind of fell apart there. And then you know you saw a couple of uh, outbursts that you don't usually see from yep. her. It was it was. You, you never, you know, and you got to be careful talking about somebody else's mental health. But it was just, yeah. Still knowing, knowing where she was, and because of how open she's been, listen, it was very, very gutsy, you know, to pull out of the French Open because you just say, I, I, I don't feel right about this, and then to skip Wimbledon, and then she wants to make this big return in Tokyo, you know, home Olympics, you know, doesn't finish it out, that doesn't win the gold, doesn't medal there. But still comes into the U.S. Open, gets through the first round, has a walkover in the second. I don't know if that hurt or helped, but I was still surprised at the way things just, I mean, 
in an instant just fell apart in that match. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be really interested to ask her what her relationship with tennis is. Remember, I, I, I played in a generation with players like Agassi and Capriati, Hingis at a moment, um, you know, Mary Pierce. I mean, the, these superstars, they have so much success, so much talent, so much is expected of them. Just as the, I mean, what is your relationship with tennis? Because I came to tennis as the great opportunity. This was the opportunity for me and my, my siblings to get out and see the world, and all you had to do was put more balls in the court than the other person. And if you don't like the result, you go on the court and you work harder and get better and there's a tournament next week and there's a tournament after that. You just keep going. And that was the opportunity to get out, um, get a college scholarship and see the world. Uh, but for these players, their tennis is so good. It's so far out in front of them that they don't even understand it. They just, you know, the tennis gods bless them with lightning bolts of forehands and backhands and enormous, tremendous talent, footwork, and they don't even understand what a, a mere mortal goes through when, you know, you're losing in the first round. They just automatically win majors and win big events. And to me, when I when I see Osaka, she just looks sad. And yeah. it's not fun to play the game, and it's not fun to win. She said that in her post-conference, like, the thrill is not there when you win. It's like that's that's when you just unplug and you take a timeout. And you you know what? It's okay. Everybody goes through this, and it's a very challenging life. This is not about counting all the money you make uh, in endorsements and prize money. It's about the experiences you have and the friends you have in the locker room. That it's a unique relationship because you got to beat them, and they got to try to beat you for your living. And you got to practice with them. You got to travel with them next week to Istanbul or to you know Guadalajara, wherever the tour goes. You got to make friends with your enemies. It's very you know your competitive uh, opposition, those types of enemies. And so I would be very interested to see how she feels about the game and how it relates to her and her direction, where she wants to go in life. And to me, happiness is number one. Have fun on the court. And you know what? You're not going to win all the matches, but you can go out there and love the energy and the passion and the nerves and all the things that come with playing on the biggest stages and the biggest stakes in tennis. I just hope she finds – not comes back because she's made to come back because it's the Olympics and she's lighting the Olympic torch, you know, at the cauldron, which is, I think, the greatest honor ever bestowed upon a tennis player to do that uh, an Olympic event that's been you know, an athletic event that's that's been going on what for a thousand years of human right. history, and it's the only tennis player to be given that honor. And she was enormous and did a great job. And you know, I, and she's a current athlete. They, Muhammad Ali did it in '96 in Atlanta, but he was obviously retired by then. Um, right. I think this is a girl that needs to figure out what her relationship with tennis is. Is it a healthy one? Is it a one that she excited about going on the court and testing herself for the day? See, today, you know, to me, you know, right now, I'm just working on Thursday. We're just working on Thursday today. I'm not worried about Friday. I'm not worried about Saturday. I'm not worried about last Monday. I take the lessons learned, and I, I work on Thursday to be the best person I can be and to the community and my family around me. And uh, I think at 23 years old, 
Osaka has a lot of weight that she has to understand. It's it's just a game. We don't work it. We play tennis. And it's just we play a game that should be fun. And until it's fun, don't play Indian Wells. Don't play Australia. Don't play until you want to step on the court, accept the risk that the other side's really good, too. Layla Fernandez was not afraid. And I will say, when I played, people didn't talk about their mental weaknesses and things. They'll say they choked or they, you know, they got tight. But you never say, boy, you know, I've got brain cramps and I, you know, because we feared playing Sampras. We feared playing Agassi because they could embarrass us. And they got nervous, too. But they never talked about their insecurities and, and all these things. Now, I, players today, like Layla walks on the court, is like, man, she, if I can just hang in there, she's going to start getting cloudy mentally, and I can win. And I, that's why we have so many new champions on the women's side every single major, because everybody yeah. feels they can be the next superstar. Wow, that's good stuff. Um yeah, well, that's really good stuff. Um, I want to move to the to the, the men's side, but um, to wrap up the uh, women's U.S. Open, um, soccer semifinals in Paris, semifinals here, um, and Sabalenka. She, I, you know, going into this year, I thought she would win one. Um, she finished last year what Ostrava, then Linz, then won Abu Dhabi to start the year. Ran into Serena in Australia, and then that was a tough one. Tough one at Wimbledon to, um, oh my goodness, Tuskova, and then, yep. and then here against uh, Layla. Um, was this opportunity just a huge, a huge blown opportunity, or another good step um, in her progression too? Because she's going to win a major. Yeah, she's going to win. I mean, this, I, I will always go back. Mark Woodford, he always talked about every year, I just want to see my ranking go up. Mm-hmm. You know, the majors will take care of themselves. And, you know, some days, you know, you just play against someone who's just playing better. Some days the, you know, just the wind's, you know, blowing sideways. And, you know, to win a major, it's so different than winning a tour event. And I wish I could really explain it in detail you think, okay, it's just two weeks. What's the big deal with just an added week? You don't understand, like, the way you navigate, just where you eat at night, where you practice, and where you stretch out. Like, there's so much going on. And remember, the draws are so much bigger. It's 128, 64 doubles, 32 mixed doubles. And you got players and coaches and bags all over the locker room the first week. And it's it's crazy because you can't get the dedicated – time on the court that sometimes you need to practice on the second serve or work on your forehand volley that you do at a at a women's only event or a smaller event where there's tons of court time and practice time and then navigate you know the first thing you do is i've got to navigate first week and that's an art in its own and then once you put yourself in the real race in the second week now there's the tro- i can see the trophy now Let's hit the round of 16 on Monday. Let's hit the quarters on Wednesday. And you just start marching that way. And she'll figure it out. She's too good. And she's getting sharper mentally. Pliskovo is another player that's going to win a major. It's just every round now, 
you've got to go in and battle like it's the finals because there are no gimmies. Qualifiers are coming in with big serves that are over 110, 15 miles an hour. And you've got Grand Slam champions flying all over the place. So, and we're not even talking about when Serena comes back or Venus is going to be lurking around as a wild card. So, you know, there's Andrescu and Sophia Kennan. And I mean, Barty's not going anywhere. It's just amazing to me to what I love the booms draw because you can close your eyes and throw a dart at the draw and like, there's my winner. That's, that's oh, my, absolutely. and Lendl's talking about that. That's Lendl's, that's, that's his philosophy on picking a, Grand Slam champion on the women's side because the women are so good now from top to bottom and everybody plays fearlessly. Well, and that's exactly why, you know, I'm watching 125s on the tennis channel almost on a weekly basis. You know, it's just like you said, especially in the, in the, uh, in the women's game. I want to move to the men because I don't want to keep you on here forever because if you gave me the chance, I would. Um, (laughs) uh, Let's go. Tsitsipas, is he is he over that French Open loss? Because I, I definitely thought he wasn't at Wimbledon in the Tiafo match. Um, he had a, a tough one with Murray. You know, Murray got pretty hot with the with all the bathroom breaks and stuff like that. And then just the war <laughs> with, 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 yeah. with Alcaraz. I mean, is he? The kid played great. It great match, but I I, I couldn't help feeling that maybe that French Open is still weighing on him. Am I way off on that? Yeah, I don't know, but I, I bet there's some to it, you know, because those are the ones that got away. We all have them. You know, you think of John McEnroe in 84, the one that got away against Lendl. He never won a singles French Open. He won a mixed doubles with Mary Carrillo, but he right. never won a singles major there at the French, and that's his. That's the one blemish. Pete Sampras. You know, he never won the French, and you can point to a couple matches that, like, maybe, you know, he should have won. He, but, you know, we, we all have them. And for Sissy Paz, he will have nightmares, just like Roger Federer has nightmares about the, was it, Wimbledon 2019, serving yeah, double points. match point. Yep. You, you got to win that. Sorry. You're like, you put yourself in that position. You got to find a way to hit a first serve clock it with a plus one forehand you're too good but you got nervous and it's to be human and it's part of the deal and we all have them sissy possible get over it he's young enough he's too talented i i don't Tiafo's a trap match wimbledon we don't have a lot of grass court prep we only play one major on it and it, yes. it's tough to get used to it he, he sissy possible do well on grass at some point but this year may have been what you said the hangover but the U.S. Open is interesting. I mean, Alca, uh, you know, Alcaraz is Alcatraz. I mean, that dude yeah. is, he is the next guy. That guy is just un, insane, unbelievable. I would be, I would have Juan Carlos Ferrero's coach call up Andre Agassi and say, this 100%. dude takes the ball early like you. He doesn't have a big serve like you did. How did you set up your points? How did you, I would be consulting with that guy. Hotline. I'd put a bat phone at in Las Vegas for for Agassi as for just Q and A stuff. Um, but I I I possibly find him. Mean, he's got an image issue right now. He's trying to sort. Uh, the dad thing doesn't help him that much because I mean there are many players that are still working with dad or mom right. on the men's side. You know, and it's just you know we're 
we're young adults, okay? I don't want to say we're men or anything, but it's just kind of – it's just different. The women's side has a lot of parents that are coaching, not on the men's side. We're like, dude, like it's it's time to move on from mom and dad. You come and watch, and they can cheer and stuff, and they can wear the gear, but like, you know, you need – you know, get Yvonne Lendl, right? Go get John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors. Get, get somebody, Boris Becker. You know, get one of these guys who walk the walk, talk the talk, who has a trophy case. You know, to me, Andre Agassi sitting there, I think he's one of the greatest minds in tennis. Brad Gilbert is sitting there. Uh, Darren Cahill, I think he just split from Halep. There's so many good coaches that can navigate those waters. And once he'll win probably four or five, six majors, and uh, he'll be fine. Playing the Labor Cup, I think, is really good. Be with his guys. You know what I mean? No dad around. It just, it's, you know, dad, great, love you. Mom played. You know, she knows the deal. It's just, he's just young, and he'll figure it out. Do you think that uh, they will address, I mean, I know there was some talk about it, they'll address the uh, the issues with leaving the court, because it seems like it's becoming, not just with him, it's becoming yeah. Um, yeah. an even bigger thing. They'll, with... they'll address it. I mean, you got, I mean, Listen, I know specifically that locker room configuration. It's back in there. So you leave the court, and you have to go to your locker, and that's a good 25, 30 yards back in there. And then wherever your locker is could be another 15, 20 yards. It's a big locker room. Um, and you got to do a full gear change. I have no problem with the gear change. Um, as long as there are bathrooms like right there, I don't know anything about the phone deal. I don't care if anybody's coaching. I, I believe in coaching. They're coaching anyway. Every player is getting coached if they have a team or a coach. I see it firsthand. They're talking to them. It's hard to enforce. But uh, but to me, the um, the number one thing is is let's get a real set of rules because getting a bathroom break on court 18 where I'm playing next to the porta potty is a different experience than playing in center court Wimbledon where there's maybe a bathroom right there. You know, it's just you've got to really take in the facilities and what's, what is, what's logistically possible. And so, remember, there isn't a rule. He didn't break a rule. They just allowed yeah. him to do it because, you know, no one's ever really complained. And Murray's got his titanium hit saying, dude, like my Advil's wearing off here. I've got to keep playing. <laughs> Like, can I hit with a ball kid or something? So yeah. uh, that's that's all. I, I I love the kid. I love watching him play. He's going to win his majors, but he's got you know just an image problem right now. We've all had it. Jensen brothers had it. Agassiz had it. Um, so he'll get through that. He just I, I'd like to see him just get a real legitimate mentor. Doesn't have to be a full time coach. Dad can still be around. Mom, I encourage family involvement, but hand over the reins to someone who's got a legitimate track record of producing champions. Mm. Um, so going into the Open, I was looking, I was thinking, okay, this is this is Medvedev's shot. And then he had, uh, what did he won in, uh, did he win Montreal? He did. No, uh, yeah, he, he won. Who won Cincinnati? Got it was Zverev. Yeah, yeah, Zverev. Zverev won yeah. Cincinnati. Yeah, uh, Medvedev got upset in Cincinnati with the camera. Was the yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what that was. Yeah. And then 
with that combined with uh, Zverev had gotten that win over Djokovic in the Olympics, and I said, oh, this might be this might be Sasha's time. But once yeah. it came down to Medvedev and Djokovic, now listen, Djokovic throughout his career is uh, he, he knows how to play the villain. He knows how to yep. you know turn the crowd. He knows how to use that. You know what I mean to motivate himself and. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't rooting for the spoiler. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. see something different, even though this is, you know, history was on the line. But yeah. was it just a combination of him running running out of gas and Medvedev being too good? Because I thought Medvedev learned a lot, not just from the the 19 final against Nadal, but I thought he learned a lot from the Australian Open final earlier this year where he just couldn't get anything going against Djokovic. Agreed. I mean, I, there's, uh, he only lost, I think, a set in, you know, the way to the final Medvedev. So he was playing really well. He was kind of in everybody's kind of blind spot. If you weren't really paying attention, he was, if you watched him, he was serving big, returning obviously big down the middle, getting into play, using that entire, those, those show courts are huge. Like you could put like, seems like two courts if you really start, you know, spacing it out. They're so big and you can return. I think the looking at that, Djokovic, unfortunately, was kind of – his legs was taken out in that Zverev match. That five-setter – remember those two 50-ball rallies? He lost one and then he won one? Yeah. And Zverev, Zverev listen, he – Zverev, like you said, won that match down a set and a break, beat him in three at the Olympics. He was going in. He was going to leave on his shield. He was going to give every ounce of his body after losing in the final and should have won it two points away last year in five against team. So Zverev was coming in hot too, and he he gutted Djokovic. And Djokovic, I mean, he was serving. Djokovic was trying to get out of points to serve in volley early on in the final. So there was nothing left. The one thing that surprised me from being sideline, I was very fortunate to be covering that match sideline. So I was across the court in the photographer's pit behind the two main cameras that are courtside. And so what happens is when you watch on TV, you watch, they always show the person who wins the point. I get a lot of intel by watching the person who lost the point. Now right. I can see them, they're talking to their box. They're, they're, you know, they're starting to get mental. So I study players after they lose points to see how they are emotionally, how they're recovering and things. And I get a lot of information there. And Djokovic, to my surprise, he had 22,000-plus cheering for him. During the women's final, hours before, he was warming up on the practice court. It was so loud. The Serbian fans and the Djokovic fans were so loud that they had to stop the women's final match until the crowd got quiet outside of Arthur Ashe Stadium. And that was Coco Golf playing in the women's doubles final, Sam Stozer playing. So it was a marquee women's doubles match, and it was great. It was entertaining. But, boy, did you hear the the Djokovic fans getting revved up. What surprised me throughout the whole time is I never saw Djokovic go to the crowd and say, I need you. Connors, 91. He's 39 years old. I need you. Get me this set. Maybe not the match. But let's get into this head of this guy. And Medvedev did blink. You know, he was up 
five two in the in the five one, but actually five two serving, lost that right. game. It kind of got dicey. If if I would have been coaching Djokovic, or if I was on the court and I didn't have my legs, or I didn't have full hundred percent health, I would have been going to that crowd and said, "Let's make it a nightmare for this dude." Like let's let's really pour it on him. Brad Pitt was standing up after every point Djokovic won. Bradley Coo I mean the, the it was a who's who. I don't think I've ever seen so many celebrities since Venus and Serena played in the final years ago where it was right. star studded. And so everybody wanted to see history. It was the biggest match in men's tennis since nineteen sixty nine when Labor won his calendar slam, the second one. And why do you think he didn't call on the crowd? Do you think he was just gassed at that point? I think he was gassed, but I think also knowing the nerves, you know, how how do you prepare for that? A person who's won 20 majors and has battled the likes of Federer, Nadal, Murray, and all the other competitors through all the years, it still doesn't prepare you for that moment. And remember, since he won the French, the talk has been, are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? Are you going to win the golden one? And it showed me that the pressure was when he melted down at the Olympics. Oh, when yeah. he had that meltdown, I was like, you know, he's really feeling it. And watching his practices, I really am blessed because I get to see their practices. I get to be courtside, and I get to just be a fly on the wall and how they're going about their business. And it was a very serious U.S. Open. He went three sets with – I'm sorry – Four sets with Rune, a qualifier. And then, you know, he goes, loses 6 1 to Jensen Brooksby. That was a, it was weird every single match. I think he only won one match in straight sets. So he was getting himself out of jams the entire match, entire tournament. And Zverev, I think, really stuck a fork in him. And he came into that battle wounded, in my opinion. And whether it was a real injury or fatigue, he and the pressure, I think he needed, again, he needed someone uh, to wake him up and say, you know, you may lose today. You may lose, but you leave every ounce of your everything. You leave your flesh out there today. You go boom, boom, and you dive on the court. I don't care what you have to do, but play. And he said this, and I didn't think he his his actions matched it, but – I he said he was going to play like it was the last match he'll ever play, and he didn't right. play that way. He didn't emotionally commit to. Uh, and listen, I I just won a doubles major. I have no idea the you know the waters he swims is the sharks that he swims with and has to battle against and the pressure he deals with. But man, I I thought he was going to leave every ounce of blood on the court that day, and. For whatever reason, Medvedev played great. He served, yeah. he was serving 126, 125. On the second serve at times, he played real good spot tennis, you know, where he was hitting his targets, um, and he was, wasn't missing ground strokes. He, he was prepared to die on the court. He was prepared to die on the court to win that day and be the spoiler. spoiler. And you know how he loves the, you know, the anti-matter when it goes yeah. against him, and he's had that experience at the U.S. Open that contributed to his success there because it wasn't a new experience. The final, like you said, against Nadal, the final against Djokovic uh, at the Australian earlier this year, 
all plays into the part of experience to meet the to match the moment, to meet the moment, to win and hold hold that trophy. Um, Luke, I think Djokovic will obviously win more majors. I think Rafa has a few. What do you think about Roger? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I'm concerned. Is it three knee surgeries now? Three, I have yeah. four. Yeah, the one thing that concerns me is the, unless you've heard about all I know is that he's on crutches for eight weeks. I was on crutches for eight weeks twice. These were microfractures. That means when the cartilage is completely shot and the integrity of the joint has been compromised. And so they do things like they nowadays they put in like a form of silly putty to fill like a a, a cavity in that joint or something that's wrong. I was never the same. Mal Washington was never the same. Lindsey Davenport was able to come back. They call them microfractures. And back then when I had it done, they poke holes into the bone to try to get the, it to bleed and then scar over, and hopefully that takes. It never happened for me. It was too far gone. Um, I just hope that Roger has the ending that he wants. And it, it's not going to be a Pete Sampras. I won a singles major. I think those days are done. It was two out of three sets, maybe, but best mm-hmm. of five sets. I think he'll continue to play his later cup. I think he can play some two out of three set situations, but, you know, it's not any easier. I mean, Sissy Poss and Zverev and teams coming back. I mean, Chiafo's not getting worse. Opelka, I mean, we can list, what, 40, 50 guys that can beat that dude in a two-out-of-three-set match, not to mention best of five. It's not like he can just navigate easily, sail through the first week, even at Wimbledon. Look what happened. The Polish powerhouse um, absolutely did get bageled him in that first set, right? Yeah. So that dude, he's nasty too. He's going to have to customize the draw to figure it out. But would you like to play Jensen Brixby right now? Would you like to no. play Mackie McDonald right now? I mean, guys are good. And that is going to take me to uh, the last thing I want to cover for you before I let you go is uh, American young American tennis. So uh, I'll throw out a couple names on, on each side. You just, you know, uh, as quick or, you know, I don't know how much time you still have. Um, just give me what you think. Um, let, let's, let's go with Mackie McDonald first. Yeah, I, I, I love Mackie McDonald. This dude has been had a weird career because of injury and COVID. So even though I think he's past, I think he's 26, 27, maybe somewhere in that end, he's a young 20, 25, 26-year-old because he hasn't had the tour odometer, all the pressure and stuff. So he's only going to get better. I mean, guy's sneaky, sneaky good. He got to the finals of Washington, beat uh, Nishikori there. Lost in Ishikori at the U.S. Open this year. But uh, I think he he has a way of, because he has such a high tennis IQ, really smart, has success at the junior level, college at UCLA, MC2A champion, and he's he's going to do well. I think Opelka, he's your, to me, him and Taylor Fritz, I would earmark them. With Tiafo too, with Wayne Ferrer coaching them, those guys have a real puncher's chance of winning majors uh for the first time in men's singles since 2003, Andy Roddick. 
I was going to say, you know, the last time, 03 started off with Andre in Australia and finished with Roddick in New York, and then uh, nothing since. And you read my mind because I had Opelka, Fritz, Brooks, Tiafo, and McDonald on my list. You covered uh, four of those, and we talked about Brooksby earlier. Um, if I could jump to the women, uh, Goff, Baptiste, Enesimova, Kennan, what do you see there? Kennan's already got oh. one, but she's had a rough time since. Yeah, she's got to sort out. We talked a little bit about the Osaka thing, what her relationship with tennis is, what's her relationship moving forward with dad. Dad's been the coach since the cradle, and that's always a tough to, you know, separate that and get on her own. Um, the uh, we're, we're hoping at World Team Tennis she plays. She's signed up to play for me in New York Empire, and we're all about having fun. Kim Kleisters is on our team, and I think have, she's our team mom. And we all have fun around Kim, and Kim is a Hall of Famer. I think Kenneth could really uh, have a great experience if she got that, maybe get her uh, love for the game and all that stuff. But she's had COVID, so we, where is she? No, no one knows with Kenneth. She'll be, she'll be back. She's too much of a fighter. She's too good for her not to get in the ring and keep fighting, throwing punches. Uh, I, I like Corey, I like Coco Corey's off. I, I love her. I think she, I've watched her practice so much. I've seen her matches. She's continuing to play doubles. That is, to me, what other young players don't do. Madison Keys, please play doubles. Serve in yeah. volley. Work on that. Continue to evolve. Don't just be – yes, you've got a lot of money and endorsements. And this – you know, she feeds – to me, looks like a defeated fighter that she should be doing what Sloan has already done or – don't, you're running your own race. You have your own lane. You're, it, it, you're not, you know, there is a plan that the tennis gods have for you. And all you got to do is try hard and work your tail off and just confidently walk forward today with a step in the right direction with getting better. But Coco Goff playing doubles with McNally, who's one of the coolest chicks on the tour and just like has a cockiness and a flair, Midwest kid. Mom played uh, pro tennis and stuff. I, I think those two, I call them team dangerous. And that is mm -hmm. the winning combination for Coco because uh, Ranakanu proved that a teenager can break through and win. And then Layla Fernandez. So now you've got a little posse, right? So it's not just Coco Goff, the 17-year-old, and a couple of years ago, the 15-year-old. Now she's got a couple of running mates. Like, remember when Chang bursted through and won the French? Who was next? Yep. Then it was Stamper. Then it was Chang. I mean, then it was uh, Courier. And then Agassi. Like, you need a posse. And you've got, like, Sinner on the men's side. They've got a posse now. And, you know, Team kind of broke through last year. And, and now you've got Medvedev. It's like, these guys, like, yeah, the old guys, you go play the legends now, okay? We're the, we're the here and now. And that's what I yeah. think is going to happen with the Coco God. Coco... I just don't want her to focus on being the next Serena. There's only one Serena. You don't want to be anybody else. You be you and keep developing your game, and all good things come for people who just make it about the business. And the business is tennis. All the other magazine covers and all this and that will happen if you stay focused on tennis first and the other stuff second. Wow. Wow. Excellent stuff. Um, Luke, before I let you go, I want to uh, bring up one of my favorite television uh, moments from when I first saw you do commentary. Okay, see if you can 
Just see if you can remember this one, okay? The summer, summer of '94, yep. New Haven. Yep. You're in the booth with Murphy, Cliff Drysdale, Fred Stolly, and Agassiz playing Simmering. Yeah. And they're playing the music during the changeovers, and I'm oh, yeah. just not having it. He was. That dead. ended up I mean, being some of the most entertaining television I had seen in a long time. <laughs> well, you see, uh, yeah, we. Uh, we really that match specifically. He, you're right. Andre was so mad. That was the first match that we ever pumped music in, and it was like "Welcome to the Jungle." I mean, this was heavy metal stuff, and and it was loud. Like they really, we hadn't gotten like the the volume right on it, and mm-hmm. boy, Andre wasn't having any of it. And Simrink, as you know, was a tricky little lefty from the Netherlands, but mm-hmm. um, Andre should have won that match. He just wasn't in the right headspace. Um, at that time, but boy, was that a lot of fun. I mean, working with Drysdale and Stolly, that was a dream. I, uh, I recorded that match on VHS and I, I wore the tape out. I actually <laughs> wore the tape out. Oh, I was just, just seeing the guy be so, you know, and Andre was my guy. So, yeah. from the first ball to the last ball, that was my guy, but seeing him just, uh, just not feeling it and then trying to figure out if he was going to, it together. He wins that second set, and then you know Simmerink ended up finishing him off. But we know how the rest of the the rest of the year went for for Andre. Yeah. He did okay a few weeks later. So that's but right. That, that's right. That and some of those late U.S. Open matches. I think there was even a, a, a late U.S. Open match. Did they bring your two sisters into the booth too? I could have sworn. Oh, yeah. yeah, they got up there, Rachel and Rebecca. Sure, USA USA Network. Man, they used to they loved the Jensens. We had it going. Those were some some really good times. Um, so on Instagram, it's at dual underscore hand underscore Luke underscore Jensen. We got a lot of underscoring going on there, dude. You have uh, no idea. I, I wanted to just really brand the dual hand Luke thing, but I am old, so I had no idea what I'm doing with social media. But it shied me away from all the, you know, the the what Twitter wars and trolls and stuff like that. I know I was horrible, and I got really lucky at the French. But I'm living the dream, man. Living the dream. And what's what's a day to day for you? Because I was watching your Instagram live the other day, and you were teaching some little youngsters. Is that is that where the the big passion is right now? You know, I have, those are t- my two nieces. Uh, they're twelve and ten. Okay. I, I, I my my love. I don't have kids. I'm not married, and and. Uh, I love being with my family. I'm up in where I grew up in Ludington, Michigan, where my parents still have their house. And we come up here and, um, and it's their, their fall break. And so they play, they love to play. And that's all we instill is for all my nieces and nephews that whatever level that they want to play tournaments, they want to play high school, they want to play tennis on campus, club tennis at college, just enjoy it. And we never result based, just smile on your face, and you're going to win, you're going to lose. But our success, all four of us, we're just given the ability to have fun. We weaponize fun uh, on the pro tour and the juniors and in college. And that's all. I, I love hanging out with them. And I just, honestly, I've never done a Facebook Live. So I said, you know, why not? Who's going to jump in on this? And I'm just having fun with the family. Having fun no matter what. Um, in 2022, what's your um... – What's your schedule looking like as far as um, events and, and, and covering things? 
You know, I'm really lucky. Kind of setting up things that we'll be covering the uh, Australian Open, uh, most likely because of COVID, uh, ESPN won't be going down there. And so we'll do it from um, Bristol, Connecticut, the the, uh, the worldwide leader. And so we'll be doing that. And then I've got Delray Beach. We're playing the McEnroe Brothers down in Delray oh. Beach in February. I've got a one-on-one doubles with Ed Kraft. And I think I'm playing Nicole Melikar in a battle that sexes. In that, that's uh, mid-February. And then we start rolling with uh, Indian Wells. If that is still going to roll, Miami. So there's just promotions. Like I said, I'm blessed. You get up and you go to work first. You you, know, you leave work last. You work your tail off. And and you, you do your very best to sell tickets and sponsorships and all that stuff. And so uh, I'm, I'm just blessed. Very lucky. And people like you still want to listen to the Jensen Bros. Oh my goodness! Look, this is this has been great. I am in uh, well, two places right now. I'm living in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, but I'm I'm from Jersey. That's that's why I had such a just a strong relationship with the U.S. Open. But I'm back and forth right now, uh, not just a podcast with other other work that I'm doing, but uh, Delray and Miami. Those are um, I didn't know about Delray, but Miami. Um, now that things are still slowly getting back to normal um our events that i'm looking to get down to so hopefully uh if i'm down there uh maybe we can link up and do this in person yeah let's do it let's do it yeah and i'll definitely most likely you said you'll be in bristol for australia would love to have back to uh to preview or 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 recap australia or even both I, i really 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 appreciate this i've been wanting to do this for a long time and uh, I just took a shot with the Instagram DM that one night, yep. and uh, by the time I'd gotten off of a phone call, you'd already hit me back, so I, I really, really <laughs> appreciate this. I rarely check that stuff, but every once in a while, I'll look at, see, you know, who's uh, who's looking at I'm really glad it worked out, and let's stay in touch. I can't wait to uh, to partner up for an Australian run. Absolutely. Awesome, man. Have a good one. Luke, thanks so much. Take care of yourself. Thank you, buddy. Bye. All right. So many, many thanks to Luke Jensen for joining me for about an about an hour. Luke was very, very generous with his time. Always, always nice to talk to. If you ever met Luke Jensen or ever had a chance to talk to him, super positive guy. Always got a smile on his face. Uh, I remember the first time I met him, he came up to me or, or I walked up to him and he just had this big smile and came up to me as if we'd been friends for many 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 years one of the really really good guys um in the professional tennis world so again my thanks to luke jensen for joining me and breaking down what was the 2021 u.s open and we got to chat about the state of uh, american tennis both on the men uh, men's and women's side um you know, this week I've been watching the rescheduled Indian Wells tournament, the BNP Paribas. Uh, it's kind of cool to have tennis, tennis from the desert on TV in October. A lot of late night matches kind of felt like uh, it helped the the withdrawals I was going into from watching the U.S. Open. I mean, I've watched tennis the last few weeks, but at nighttime hardcore tennis is something something special about it um Radicanu went out immediately um but listen this is a very very uh young woman 
who just took the tennis world by storm with how she played at Wimbledon and then winning her first Grand Slam as a qualifier. How about that? You know, you you win a Grand Slam, you think about winning seven matches. Well, she won ten because she had to qualify. So she came into this tournament, a lot of people, you know, focusing on her and how would she follow that up. And uh, it just didn't work out for her, but this is not something to be concerned with. She is now has to adjust from being someone who has to qualify the tournaments to now being looked at as someone who's going to go deep and win more of these Grand Slam tournaments. Um, as I'm speaking right now, Zverev and Fritz are in a third set of the semifinals. Sitsipas lost earlier to... I'm going to mess up... Uh, I'm usually good with these names. Basilevi. Oh, come on. Now i got to look again because I want to make sure that I pronounce it right. So, uh, Sitsipas losing to Basilevi. Come on. Basilevi. I'm not even going to take this out. I'm going to let you guys listen to me struggle. I've been so good with these names. Basilashvili. There we go. Uh, but he took out uh, Sitsipas 6-4 in the third set. So he advances to the semifinals. Uh, Sasha Zverev and Taylor Fritz, who are now 5-5 in the third set as we speak on this Friday evening, October 15th. Um, man, this has been an exciting couple of weeks in professional tennis. Exciting to uh, experience a historic U.S. Open. Uh, I personally very excited to be able to bring you a guest on this podcast and looking forward to not just a couple of tournaments, the indoors, but the uh, year-end championships. And uh, I'll tell you what, before you know it, We'll be looking ahead to 2022, and the Australian Open will be running, uh, be coming back around. And as you heard in that interview, Luke Jensen's going to come back uh, sometime in January. We'll preview the Australian Open um, and so forth. So, um, I appreciate the patience. Uh, sorry for the delay between this podcast and the last one. I hope uh, Luke Jensen and myself made up for it. And uh, I will be back soon. I'll, I'll uh, go over the indoor circuit and anything in tennis that breaks. Hopefully I'll have a another guest or two. We're still working on that right now. But for now, uh, I will bid you adieu and finish watching this match that is 5-5 in the third set between Sasha Zverev and Taylor Fritz. And thank you guys so much for listening, and until next time, as always, Game Set Match.